third one, sloth and torpor or laziness and lassitude in the mind. And then the, the fifth one, skeptical doubt, doubtfulness. Now these are hindrances that we can recognize, but we have to also know their names in order to be able to have a sort of an objective recognition of them. We won't, if we have that, if we have an objective recognition, we won't neither blame ourselves for them nor justify them. We will just call them by their names and know that we should substitute. If we can't substitute with the opposite, we take an intermediary step. We take a step away from the unwholesomeness to something that is soothing or uplifting the mind. And then get back to the substitution when the mind has relaxed. When we're furiously angry, it's practically impossible to substitute with love. But it is possible to take the mind off the fury and the anger and put it somewhere where it can relax and can feel more at ease. Once it has done that, we can substitute the anger for that particular person or situation. At least we can substitute with far more ease. So these steps will eventually lead to the ability to drop. Just let go. Which is, of course, an ideal. And then that which only arises for an enlightened one, the negativities do not come up anymore. So we can take all those preliminary steps because without them we're going to be constantly stuck in the same rut over and over again. And also we will be responding to the same triggers which come up over and over again in the same way. If we've done it long enough, the mind usually decides that it's had, it's had enough. But that if we wait for that, that usually takes decades. So it's a bit of a long-term affair. It's better to start now. The meditative factors which I have mentioned and out of those the first two being present in any meditation are the initial application to the meditation subject and then the sustained application like the gong that is hit and then the sound that keeps going. They are automatic antidotes 
Four, the first one was loss and torpor, laziness and lassitude of the mind, and the second one an antidote against skeptical doubt. Because some self-assurance arises that one can actually concentrate if one could keep on the meditation subject. And then the third meditative factor, which is a result of having been concentrated sufficiently, the delightful sensation, which is the feature of the first meditative absorption and which is an automatic antidote against ill will. Which does not mean that if one practices with the meditative absorption that one is released from the duty of working with one's purification of emotions during the day. It's not sufficient to rely on that which happens automatically in the meditation because we don't do that all day long. It's effectively counteracted in daily life if we don't keep working at it. So the actual remedy for our ill will is both working with loving kindness and compassion during the day and the meditative absorption which contains that delightful sensation in its first instance. I explained already how to get there, how to work with it, and there are a few other things that need to be said about it. One is that automatically, together with the delightful sensation, joy also arises. It's, of course, a logical happening that with delightful sensation, joy arises simultaneously. It's hardly possible that it doesn't. That joy in Pali is Sukha and it denotes the joy of the meditation. There is a word also for joy which denotes the joy we have out of sense contact. It's Pamoja. So it's a different word and it denotes two different things. This joy in the meditation is an automatic antidote for the fourth hindrance, worry and restlessness. The uh, Buddha compared worry and restlessness with being a slave. One is being pushed about by it. Pushed about very often physically, restlessness going from here to there and back to here. And worry in the mind, a mental being pushed about from one item of worry to the next. Obviously, 
very detrimental to meditation, but so are all the hindrances. Whenever the hindrances arise, the meditation cannot arise at the same time. And that's why the absorption is such an excellent antidote because it can only happen at a time when the hindrances are momentarily laid to rest. And that's why when the hindrances are momentarily laid to rest, it's absolutely delightful. And we can have an experience of our inner purity, no hindrances. So what does that feel like? Well, one can use any superlative one likes. It feels wonderful. And the Buddha gave it specific words. We can use any word we like. Words are concepts. They're not feelings. They're trying to describe feelings. But, of course, they can never really do that completely. They can sort of be on the edge and point to the feeling. So whatever words we would like to use for the experience, any words, fine. One can imagine that, if we haven't done it yet, what it's like when there is no desire, no ill will, no lassitude, laziness, no worry, no restlessness and no doubt. The mind is clear and clean. It is bathing in its own purity. It does not have to touch upon anything except being aware of the sensation in the first place and then the emotion which arises. Being a slave means being dependent and in this case being a slave to something which is really extremely unfortunate. It's not a very nice master, worry and restlessness. And uh, all of mankind suffers, particularly from restlessness, because that happens to be one of the hindrances which is only totally dissolved one step before enlightenment. So that's why all the cities are clogged up with cars, all the freeways are clogged up, all the airports are clogged up. Everywhere where people can go from one spot to the next, they're all congregating and moving in all directions. It's very common that when one comes out of a meditation course such as this, has one's own car, gets into it, gets on the freeway, and the first thought is, where is everybody going? And obviously, one is going somewhere oneself. <laughs> but that, of course, is always very important where oneself is going. <laughs> Three days later, one takes the freeway as it is. Clogged up here, clogged up there, cars everywhere, everybody moving. So, the restlessness which we experience does not necessarily have to be in vehicles. It's also, of course, in the mind.
we don't find it sufficient what we experience because it doesn't fulfill us so we look for something new and hopefully different and even more hopefully better it doesn't happen that way but it is human nature so it's a very unpleasant taskmaster that everybody has to obey because it's just innate human experience however with the automatic antidote of the meditative absorption it diminishes it does not disappear it disappears with complete and total insight into the utter uselessness of it however we don't we can't wait for that disappearance we are much better off having it diminished in the meantime again in daily life the buddha recommended that we learn more about the dhamma the teaching that we associate with wise and mature people and that we try and see the dhamma as it applies to ourselves now this sukha this joy which arises simultaneously as a fourth factor of the uh, meditative absorption also has a fifth one attached to it and that fifth one which is called one pointedness is a meditative factor of any concentration so you can see from that that there are three which arise in any meditation be it ever so brief and that's why any meditation concentrated or otherwise absorbed or otherwise is of great benefit the kind of benefit we would never have otherwise one pointedness has to be there in order to even pay attention now when the one pointedness has become stronger then the absorption can happen but if it's weak it will happen momentarily and so there are three kinds of concentration two of them only mentioned in the commentaries the buddha did not have anything to do with concentration which wasn't total but they are mentioned and they are sometimes oh no not sometimes usually mentioned in um, particularly in america so i mention them here too the first one is kanika samadhi which means momentary concentration brief one moment just putting the mind on that what's happening now that already brings that benefit of initial application to the meditation subject which counteracts loss and torpor in the mind so it has benefit 
It also has a very little, but it has one-pointedness because one can only be even momentarily concentrated with one-pointedness. And one-pointedness is the automatic antidote against sensual desire. If we are one-pointed on the meditation subject, we can't think of what are they going to have for lunch today. It's either or. Of course, the minute we stop being one-pointed, we can then think about it. But, as I mentioned before, luckily, we can only do one thing at a time with the mind. Very, very quick succession, many, many things, but one at a time. So it's either one-pointedness with momentary concentration or it's sensuality. So even the momentary concentration is of great benefit. Then there is the neighborhood concentration, upachara samadhi. Now in the actual practice, when you're on the breath, it feels as if you may be attending to the breath constantly, but at the same time, there are sort of nebulous thoughts going past the back of the head. Now, they're not, of course, going past the back of the head, but that's what it feels like. And they're too nebulous to label, and they shouldn't be labeled. Obviously, one isn't attending to the breath constantly. The mind is doing this, what we discussed last night. It's going from one thing to the other in such quick succession that it feels as if it's doing two things at the same time, attending to the breath and having the thoughts in the back of the head. If this is what it feels like, then what is needed is not labeling. There's nothing to label. It's so nebulous. One doesn't know what it is. But a little more willpower. Not wanting results, which is a totally different thing, but willpower, determination. In Pali, Aditana, which is a feature of meditation, which one should always include, the determination to do one's best. In this case, the determination would be letting go, falling into the breath more. Again, in Upachara Samadhi, in the neighborhood concentration, we have the same benefits that we've had from momentary concentration. The initial application of the mind to the meditation subject, also the apparent sustained application, which helps because neighborhood concentration is fairly pleasant, far more pleasant than momentary concentration, and so the doubting mind get, takes a bit of a rest. And the one-pointedness is there, too, in a certain measure. So with whatever meditation practice we can muster, we have three benefits which are automatic, and we counteract three of the hindrances automatically the sloth and torpor, the doubt, and the sensual desire.
And then there's full concentration upon a samadhi. And that is the meditative absorption. And as far as concentration and meditation goes, it's the only kind the Buddha ever explained and talked about. Which may have the reason that he didn't invent meditation. It was a well-known practice in uh, India at his time and had been going for at least two and a half thousand years before his time. It's mentioned in the Rig Vedas. So it wasn't something entirely new like it is in the West or something that had to be resurrected even in Asia in this day and age. But it was something that was going. It was an ongoing affair. And from that one may assume, and this is just an assumption, it's all it is, one may assume that people knew very well how to meditate. It's also uh, possible, and it has happened many times, that when there is a great master alive, that there are also great disciples alive. We have um, seen that with, for instance, the Renaissance painters. We have also seen it with the great musicians. There are also several of them alive at the same time. And it may very well happen also with the great spiritual masters. These are assumptions, not facts. So the explanations of the Buddha for the meditative absorptions are very brief extremely brief and nowhere as elaborate as what I'm explaining to you which may have and that's also an assumption given rise to the idea in many people's minds that they're not necessary but brevity does not mean that they're not necessary. It just means what, uh, what I already said, that either people knew or could do it. Now we have the full concentration, which brings with it the other two factors, which are the delightful sensation and the joy, which work against the uh, ill will, the delightful sensation against the ill will. And we have the joy which works against our sensual desires. So there, sorry, against restlessness and worry. The uh, joy is in the beginning against, in the background. In the beginning we have the delightful sensation in the foreground and that's as it should be it is easier to notice and there are mentioned 17 different kinds I'm sure there are more than 17 but 17 are mentioned but some of those are the most prevalent and the most prevalent are lightness of body floating losing the boundaries, um, tingling, warmth. These are already the most usual ones that come up. 
our sense of extreme well-being, also another one. Whichever is the strongest is the one that put one, one puts one's attention on. Now, with those two, which are Piti and Sukha in Pali, they are only available when the mind is really concentrated. That's when we cross the threshold. The other three are available for any meditation. And those two, which are only available when we're really concentrated, then also have a very strong residual effect. And I spoke about that already, the residual effect that the delightful sensation has because we've found a home for the mind and know that the daily difficulties are not all there is. There is something much more pleasant as soon as we sit down to meditate. If we do any of the meditative options, but also if we've had what we consider a very good meditation. We should, at the end, before we open our eyes, do three things. The end may be when the gong goes or when the concentration goes, whatever is the end. We should first recapitulate how we got there. We should try to remember each step we took and the steps we take are also during the time we haven't been meditating. Now if we've been angry all day it's a foregone conclusion that we won't meditate very well. But if we've been practicing loving-kindness all day, it's much more likely that we can meditate. So we should try and remember that. What have we been doing? How did we use our mind during the day so that now it is having a good meditation? Maybe we've been mindful, attending to body movement, or we've been watching our content of mind and substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome. Maybe we've been really trying to prepare the mind for the meditation. That would be a very insightful experience because it would probably be the incentive to do it again. Then we can check out and see, have we eaten more or less? slept more or less? Have we sat differently? Is it a different time of day? What are all the features which have helped to get me really concentrated this time? Did I use a breath? Did I use loving kindness? Did I use part by part? Did I use contemplation? What did I use? How did I get there? One of the features which is very often also a part and parcel of a better or worse meditation is one's sitting posture. And gradually and eventually one finds out which one is the best. But that's only one matter. 
the most important is how I use my mind. And having found certain features, and all the ones I've mentioned, may have nothing to do with what you yourself have done. You have to find those features yourself. Having found some features, we know what we need to repeat. And we are opening up our pathway to the concentration by using all the supports that we can possibly find. Then, the next thing that we need to look at, whatever the meditation was about, if we consider it good, or if it had delightful sensation or joy, and joy, is that too is impermanent. We have no objection to our knee pains being impermanent, but we usually would prefer if a delightful sensation would stay. And therefore, it's extremely important to verbalize it to oneself. That, too, is impermanent. Because the minute we stop, it goes away. In fact, the minute we take our mind off it, it goes away. In order to come back, we've got to put our mind there again. To recognize the impermanence of that which is pleasant, is really more important yet than recognizing the impermanence of that which is unpleasant. Because that which is unpleasant is always hoping that it's impermanent. If the body has some pains, we're hoping that it will go away quickly or we take some medicine. But that which is pleasant, we really want to keep and enhance and have again and are really engaged in making it happen. So that's the second thing we do. First is a recapitulation. Second one is that too is impermanent. And the third thing is, what am I learning here? What, um, what is the insight I can gain out of this meditative experience, whichever way it was? Now, if it was the delightful sensation, Rapture, it's sometimes called. It depends how strong it is. It may be strong or middling or not, um, maybe quite weak. It doesn't matter. Then, the first thing that we learn from that is that actually we feel inside quite different from the way we've usually felt. And not only different, but much better totally independent of whether we have a healthy body or not. The body does not really enter into that. Although these are, are described as physical sensations, they have nothing to do with the body. They're just felt in the body. So anything that the body is suffering from at that time cannot be felt because we don't put our mind to it either. And that is a very um, very insightful experience in the first place because it also tells us that the mind can be stronger than the 
difficulties of the body. Mind over matter. We can do it. It's a very interesting experience. These are not words, we can do it. And we also recognize the fact that we are looking in the world for these pleasant, lovely, delightful experiences and are actually carrying them within. All we have to do is let go of everything else we're carrying around. Usually we carry so much around that it takes a while till we can let go of all that. It's heaps and heaps of stuff and it has been accumulating not just over the decades we have been alive but it has been accumulating over lifetimes. So letting go, although it's a nice short word, is not a very short action. It takes time. We may see something else in that experience. These are the suggested insights. Now, as we have the awareness of this delight within, we also realize that this is still a gross sensation. And sometimes people say, but I'm not meditating in order to get delightful sensations. No, of course not. Nobody is. The mind always plays tricks. We're not doing that because of. It happens to be the entry hall. And if you want to enter into a mansion, you usually have to go through the front door, through the entry hall. You have hardly any choice unless you want to come through the chimney. And in this case, that doesn't work. So this happens to be the entry hall. And we didn't enter for the purpose of the entry hall, but we've got to go through it. So we realize that this is still a gross sensation, even though it's far more subtle than any uh, sense contact that we can have on the uh, worldly level. It's still gross. And so we can, on purpose, let go of the attention on the delightful sensation and transfer our attention to the joy which has arisen at the same time and it can now be brought into the foreground of our attention. First one, physical sensation. The second one, emotion, more subtle. And the joy now being in the foreground usually emanates from what is called the spiritual heart, which is in the center of the chest. This is what most people feel where it comes from. It can emanate as warmth, it can emanate as a um, um, feeling of pouring out of love, it can have a feeling of sweetness, it can be so joyful that the tears come, anything at all can happen. It's a second 
meditative absorption. It is a result of the first one. And the first one is a result of concentration. And concentration is a result of purification. The whole thing is a matter of cause and effect. So if we do one, we can count on being able to do the next. If we do the purification and are steady and diligent at it, we can count on it that we will be able to concentrate. If we sit down and try and do it. And if we can concentrate, then we can count on it that we will come to the delightful sensation and from that we can count on it that we'll come to the joy. One follows the other. And they all follow each other. But here we have a particularly uh, strong um, understanding how they can follow each other. The other meditative absorptions also follow on as cause and effect. One of the things which is necessary to learn is to stay on the either delightful sensation in the first instance and then on the joy in the second instance for a period of time. Now since our sense of time is markedly changed when we are truly concentrated, it's totally useless saying 10 minutes or 15 minutes. We wouldn't know anyway. But sufficient length of time to have really become totally familiar with the feeling. To be able to bathe in it, be filled by it, encompassed by it, surrounded by it, knowing it from inside out. If we then finish, either bell goes or concentration goes, something goes, we then have again the same three steps, recapitulation, what did I do? That too is impermanent. And the third one is, what am I learning? And here, the learning situation becomes stronger because the joy, even though it may be mild, is a stronger experience than the physical sensation, not in its actual effect, but in the impact it makes on the mind. The very delightful sensation makes a great impact first and second and third time and then it becomes sort of uh, so what else is there and uh, but the joy when it truly arises makes a great impact over and over again and the mind becomes very um, clear about the fact that there's no need to look for sense contacts to be joyful. In fact, no sense contact has ever brought this kind of joy to the mind. It has brought joy, no question, but not that much or that 
quality. So what we're actually doing, we're enhancing the quality of our lives in the first instance. But we're doing far more. We are recognizing sense contacts for what they are. They are absolute necessity for survival. It's very difficult when you're blind or deaf or have no touch feeling. It's very difficult. So it's much easier to survive when your senses are operating. But we think until we have something better that our senses are designed so that they are our amusement park. And that's a misconception. Obviously, we have pleasant sense contacts. We should have. There's no reason why we shouldn't. In fact, the Buddha said that they're part and parcel of human life. But in order to... If we think that they are actually our amusement park and the only one we've got, then our time and energy is spent for something which is totally impermanent and also never completely fulfilling for the simple reason that it is so impermanent and has to be resurrected. And time and energy for the resurrection of the pleasant sense contacts can from now on used more profitably. We have a different priority. It changes. The priority changes. It doesn't mean that our lifestyle has necessarily to change. It often does, but it doesn't have to. It's the priorities in our life which change. One of the very interesting features of the concentrated mind in meditation and the sense contacts is that is the fact that very often people are in a course like this they recognize the fact that the grass looks much greener and the flowers look more beautiful and the sky is much bluer than it ever was and most of the people look beautiful which of course stops once the course is over. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not an uncommon experience. And it arises out of a very definite change in the mind, which is so subtle and so automatic that one doesn't even know one has made that change until one can repeat the second meditative absorption often enough and look at the results often enough that becomes quite clear in the mind what's happening. What is happening is that one has had a joy which is far more fulfilling and satisfying than the joy out of sense contacts and the mind has sort of recognized that and is no longer searching for the pleasant sense contact. And because it's not searched for it, it's also not trying to hang on to it and repeat it. So there, the craving isn't there. And because the craving has been removed from the sense contact, the sense contact becomes 
much more impressive. It is purer. It doesn't have the impurity of wanting it in it. And therefore, with that purity, it has more beauty in it. Usually, one has to be in an intensive meditative situation in order to experience the greater beauty of the sense contact. But if the mind has become purified of its craving, then this can be quite a common experience. When it becomes a common experience, one no longer knows, the mind no longer knows, that it wasn't like that before. It's like trying to tell a blind person what milk looks like. Can't be done. So if one has now become more seen, one can no longer remember what it's like not to have seen. But in the beginning, when it happens the first or second time, it's very impressive. But what is important about it, it's not that the grass is green and the sky is blue, that's not important. It's only a feature of it. What's important is that the priorities in the mind change. Because we know for a fact we've got it in us. We don't have to get it. It's there. Catch 22. The joy which we need in order to sit down, is not the same kind. It's the worldly kind. It's a kind where we can arouse it through gratitude, through loving kindness, through uh, insight. It's a worldly kind of joy which we need. And if we have less dukkha, obviously it's much easier to arouse joy within oneself. So maybe from that exposition, it's already quite clear why the Buddha taught the pathway of the jhanas not as a goal, not as an end, but as the means to the end of all dukkha. Less craving, less dukkha. First and second noble truth. It's important never to forget to recapitulate how we got to a good state in meditation and we ourselves are the judges of that, what's good. Not to forget to see that it's also impermanent and to investigate what am I learning. I will briefly outline the third meditative absorption. And the meditative absorptions are the natural pathway for the mind, any mind. Not to go along that pathway is actually more difficult than going along that pathway. Once one meditates for any length of time, and some people can do it actually in their first meditation course, but that's rather unusual. But most people, or not most, but some people, really get an inkling of it in their first meditation course, so that at least they know what can be done. In order to really anchor it and make it solid, 
one does need more practice. One needs time for that. So, as we practice, these first three, number one, two, three, are not difficult. They don't even sound difficult, do they? But very often people say, people who ought to know that they are difficult. They're not. The minute one thinks it's difficult, one's already putting a blockage in the way. It's a natural pathway for the mind. It's that what every human mind would like to do. And that's what practically everyone comes to meditation for. They have get some joy and peace and quiet in the mind. Wherever we can read about inner and silent prayer, where we can read about mystics, where of former times, where we can read about meditative um, experiences, there are always the jhanas. There isn't anything else. The mind of the human, um, of humans is the same. It doesn't matter whether we call it prayer, mysticism, meditation, uh, full absorption, jhana, uh, it doesn't really matter at all. That's what happens. And the first three are the common ones. They're not difficult. They, um, and the Buddha said actually that one can have a path moment after any of the jhanas. After, not before, after. So even number one should be enough. From personal experience, um, I dare say that it wouldn't be quite sufficient. But he said so. He said that even the first one or the second one or the third one, any one of them is sufficient to have a past moment, which means a personal experience of Nibbana. Now, when we come to and have experienced the second one for some time, we also need to voluntarily, on purpose, let go of that inner joy. If it has been strong and utterly satisfying, some people find that difficult. Most people do not. Because particularly in the West, we have this achievement syndrome. And having heard that there are eight, so why should we stop at number two? <laughs> so we don't really have that difficulty. It's very rare that you come across somebody who can't let go. It's a more feature in the East. The achievement syndrome isn't quite that strong there, which we can notice at any post office in Asia. (laughs) 
even thinking about it, I could cry. (laughs) (laughs) So we are quite able to let the joy go in the background of our attention. And what appears in the foreground is contentment. Because having had joy, we are now contented. And the contentment brings with it a great sense of peacefulness. Now, even in the second jhana, we have let go of the first two aspects of the meditation, namely the initial and sustained application. So we don't need those anymore. The... um, what we have left now in the second one is the uh, in the background the delightful sensation and in the foreground the joy and the one-pointedness. In the third jhana we let go of that background delightful sensation and what is in the foreground is that contentment which has a tinge of joy in it, but it is far greater, better described as contentment. A contentment which brings peacefulness with it. Uh, In a symptomatic way of explaining it, the uh, first and second jhana seem to be happening up here somewhere. They don't, of course, but that's very often what one feels like, particularly the first first one, which is up here, and then the second one, which seems to be happening in the chest. The third one, the mind seems to settle down. It seems to drop. It seems to drop further down. It doesn't do anything of the kind. But it is more absorbed. And because of being more absorbed, it has that feeling of going downward. And it is not exciting at all. The first two have some excitement in them. The third one doesn't have that at all. It has a feeling of being settled. And being settled in a way which brings security, which one has that kind of feeling not possible in on the worldly level. The security on the worldly level is something that we know already is insecure. But here, this is one of the features. One of the very important aspects of the third meditative absorption is the consequent investigation what am I learning from that and what we're learning from the third one without doubt is the fact that we can only be contented and have inner peace when we have no wishes and the mind accepts that without any resistance whatsoever because It is experiencing it. The wishes have disappeared at that time because we had what we wanted. We had joy. 
And that's what we want. So, no wishes. Everything's fine the way it is. And therefore, contentment. Now, when one says this to somebody who has never experienced this, or even never meditated, the answer is usually, yes, but. <laughs> and then the whole story of the buts, of the things one has to do in the world. But at this point in time, we're not talking about the things we have to do in the world. Because what we do in the world brings worldly results. Here we're talking about what we're doing on the spiritual path, which brings spiritual results. But if we don't translate that what we experience in the meditation into our daily life, then the effect is not what it should be. So we can see in the third meditative absorption quite clearly that this contentment, this inner peacefulness is only possible because there was nothing left to wish for. And what we had was independent joy. Joy from an independent source, namely our own concentration. And that will change, no doubt, our attitudes. It may not change our living quarters. It may not change our partnerships. It may not change our job situation, but it will change our attitudes. And when it changes our attitudes, we will see. If we drop many of the wishes for getting things, not necessarily material things, but getting whatever it is that we want to get, there's far more ease in the mind. But it's not to be confused with inactivity. Non-wishing does not mean inactivity. Inactivity is very often due to laziness and has no place on the spiritual path. Non-wishing means that we know we've got everything within us already that we could possibly ever get and that our activity has only certain reasons for it. One is to stay alive because we have to make a living and the other is to be helpful to others and that's it and when we can let go at that our lifestyle changes not exactly what we do may be exactly the same but the style in which we do it and because of that the inner peacefulness has a residual effect within and can stay with us much easier. The first and second noble truths are there is dukkha and there's only one reason for dukkha and that's craving, wanting, wishing. The less dukkha we want, the less wishes and not to be confused with inactivity. Teresa de Avila who I admire greatly, said that God is to be found amongst the cooking pots. So, and she's not the only one that says that. And she obviously 
found him there too. <laughs> the meditative absorptions are the pathway of the meditation. And if you're struggling with the breath or with the uh, part by part, if you continue to meditate, there's no doubt that this will be possible for anyone to do. It's nothing special. It's just the mind being trained. That's all. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now imagine that your heart is a very beautiful and very valuable golden bowl and that this golden bowl is filled to the rim with love and compassion. And as you see your heart as a golden bowl filled with love and compassion you can actually feel how that brings you happiness and joy And now you pour the love and the compassion all over yourself so that you can actually bathe in the warmth of the love and be surrounded and covered by the care of compassion. And now you take that golden bowl which is your heart and contains your love and hand it to the person sitting nearest you. And you make a little bow and ask that person to accept your love. And you can see that that person's face lights up with joy.
Now you take the golden bowl of your heart, filled with your love, and hand it to your parents. Ask them to accept it. Let them know that it's a gift without any strings, a pure gift of love. Now, we think of those people who are nearest and dearest to us, those we might live with. And we hand that golden bowl of our heart, filled with the warmth of love to each one of those, wanting to manifest our togetherness, our closeness, our care, our concern without expecting any return. And we can see that they're very happy to receive our gift of the golden bowl of the heart. Now we go to <clears throat> each one of our friends, relatives and acquaintances, all those that we can think of, make a little bow to each of them and hand them the golden bowl of our heart filled with the warmth of love to the brim, seeing the joy that it brings them, feeling our togetherness, realizing that our human relationships can only work on that basis. think of those people whom we meet in our daily lives 
anyone who comes to mind, neighbors, colleagues, students, patients, teachers, whoever is part of our daily lives. And we have a golden bowl of the heart for each of them. And we can see that they appreciate the beauty and value of it. Recognizing that there's nothing more valuable in the whole of the world. Except the gift of the heart. Now we'll think of the most difficult person that we've ever met, that may be part of our life now. And again, we make a little bow and give that person the gift of the golden bowl of our heart. Ask that person to accept it filled to the brim with the warmth of our love. We'll put the attention back on ourselves and expand and enlarge that golden bowl as far and wide as we can. Make it so large that it can encompass this whole earth on which we live. And as we have expanded and enlarged it to that extent, we tip the warmth of love and compassion that it contains out over the people, all beings that can be found on this little planet. 
and we see that whoever is touched by that experiences joy and happiness and we feel the interconnection Having tipped out that golden bowl, we can see that our love and compassion is flowing everywhere without discrimination. Touching the hearts of as many people as possible. put our attention back on ourselves and we see that the love and compassion which has been poured out of that golden bowl of our heart has touched us, ourselves too and we are completely covered and surrounded and completely bathed in the warmth of the love that we have poured out for our own heart. people everywhere learn to love each other